Thank you for downloading our podcast. We are tempted to pursue a more tangible religion. We can fall into a trap and think we need more than Christ. But Hebrews assures us that Christ is all we need. Join us as we study Hebrews to learn more about the great Melchizedekian priest who presides in heaven. As we look at the epistle or the letter to the Hebrews, one of the criticisms that people can bring against this book is that the author is heavily influenced by what we could say is sort of a Gnostic thought process. Now what this simply means is that the author of Hebrews has this idealism that where Christ is in the most holy place is a place where individuals lose their body. It's not physical. It's not tangible. It's just holy spiritual. And so it's kind of what we started last time talking about the Platonic view where you have the world of ideals or the world of the spirit or the spirits, the forms, and then on this earth you have something that sort of resembles it. So as we go through Hebrews, we we can kind of hear that in terms of what we saw last time in chapter 8 where he talks about the shadow and and this sort of language that he uses. Chapter 9 is something where I would argue certainly teaches against this criticism, sort of sets the record straight. What the author of Hebrews wants us to understand, he doesn't have a problem with tangible, physical things, right? He's not saying that the ideal would be that we shed this body, we just become souls that float around, and that would be the ideal state of mankind or human beings. That's not what he's saying. He wants us to understand what Christ is doing, why Christ is so significant, and what uh, or where he ministers is so superior. And so what is so superior? Why, why is it uh, something where we can be confident uh, that right now, actually where we are, is a better place in covenant history than Israel in the land of Canaan? Because that's what he's arguing. So how can it be that when we have Christ in heaven, we're wandering through this earth, we don't have the tabernacle like Israel did, but yet this time in covenant history is actually a better time than what Israel had, something that could be mysterious to us. And then we might say, well, maybe he just wants us to be a spiritual people. And so as we consider this, we'll see first the tabernacle furnishing. So this these 10 verses divide nicely into two points uh, where he sort of recalls what the tabernacle was, the usage, how this was presented, verses 1 through 5. And secondly, the tabernacle's limitation, which would be verses 6 through 10, where he draws a contrast. So verses 1 through 5, he's saying this is what the tabernacle was, this is the intention, 6 through 10. This is why it is limited in scope, limited in power, and not something we want to return to. And so let's begin with the tabernacle's furnishings. In order to understand this argument, we do have to explore or review chapter 8. Because the author of Hebrews wants us to understand that Christ is not some sort of a maverick, right? I mean, we can think that and say, well... You know, there's a Levitical priesthood with the proper genetic code and the law of God. And then we have this this Christ who claims his tie to some figure called Melchizedek. 
and somehow this is supposed to be superior. Well, Hebrews 8, as the author um, advances his argument, saying, listen, this was the intention of the covenant of grace. So for a Hebrew or, or someone with a Jewish mindset, they're thinking, no, the intention of the covenant of grace was a mosaic economy. You know, being there with Moses, having the tabernacle, ideally the temple, being in the land. And Hebrews is saying, no, you're not seeing the intention of the covenant that was made to Abraham. The intention was that we are going to be brought into the heavenly place. This is the assurance. This is why he ends with Jeremiah 31, 31, uh, going on to the end of that passage, with that prophecy saying there's going to be this new covenant, this internal covenant that's going to be ultimately confirmed where my spirit will dwell in the midst of my people and I will establish what I have said uh, to Abraham. But also in terms of this covenant of grace, we need to remember that it's going to be established in a particular time and it is established in a particular time. You still have your Bibles open, 8 verse 6. He talks about the reality of who Christ is, that he's obtained a ministry that's better. Why? Because it's enacted, established on better promises. So it's not the promises of Moses, it's the promises that God has made to Abraham. So he wants us to understand this, that, that in chapter 8, he's, he's laying out this intention of covenant history. And he's saying, listen, the intention to Abraham we're seeing it. We're actually living this out today as God's covenant people, that we're Gentiles who have come in and who embrace this Christ by the grace of God. And so he's saying this is the outworking of the covenant of grace. This is what chapter 8 is summarizing. Now going on then as we look at, at chapter 9, he's addressing where we left off, where we talked about the shadow, a shadow of things to come. Uh, the pattern that was shown to Moses, verse 5, and how there's a better covenant. So now he's, he's going through this and saying, let's, let's address what I fundamentally mean about the shadow. Now we, we talked about the shadow being something that's temporary. Uh, it's not saying there's something that's really real and then there's just something that's, that's not so real or just a figment of our imagination. Uh, is just talking about temporarily, temporary uh, promises or temporary manifestations of God's intention. So there's a reality in heaven, the physical reality of where we're going. And then there's sort of a, a taste, a, a reminder, a picture of what this is going to look like. And that's how we need to picture this, this kingdom. Now generally, in, in terms of just answering where we started with the claim of you know, being disembodied spirits or, or having this really real world and it's not really tangible. We need to understand, well, what does Scripture generally talk about in terms of the ultimate outworking of God's promise? We're going to be at the heavenly banquet. Picture there is food. It's a city with streets paved of gold. Now, may not literally have gold, but the intention is there's going to be a tangible city we will see, a tangible place. When we are raised, ideally, we are raised in a glorified body. So our body and souls are reunited in that day. And so it's not Hebrews contradicting the rest of Scripture and saying, listen, you know, Israel was tangible, that's why it's bad. 
we're going to be intangible. That's the ideal. Because he wants us to understand as he begins in verse 1. The Old Covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Now, obviously, there's something tangible. There's regulations. He's going to use this again in verse 10, uh, where we have there uh, the recollection of these tangible things that are given, uh, where we have these regulations that are given. So you have sort of the, the, uh, the subsection that's enclosed by, by this word. It's telling us right here, here's a bit of an argument that I'm introducing at this point. Uh, the fancy terminology is what I'd argue in inclusio, where he's saying here's a subsection of the main argument. So it's including these, these points. And what he's telling us about this earthly place that, that's tangible, we have to understand the language he's using here. He's not just saying material. This is wrong. No, he's saying earthly. So he wants us to understand how is this place built? Well, it's built uh, from this cosmos, literally translated in the Greek. And what this is telling us is that while this, this tabernacle is this portable temple where God dwells with his people, the fundamental problem is that this, this tabernacle comes from this earthy age. And when we say earthy age, what do we mean by that? We mean the fallen, sin-cursed world. So the fundamental problem that he's calling to our attention here is not that it was tangible. That's not the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is that it comes from this fallen, sin-cursed age. And so it's teaching us that we can never, from this sin-cursed age, rise up and enter into heaven. It's teaching us that this age is always going to be under a curse if it stays on its current trajectory. There is nothing we can do to redeem it. There's nothing we can do to overcome it. It is powerless. It is sin-cursed. And so when, when he uses this language of, of earthly, he's not intending for it just to be material. He's saying that it's from this sin-cursed a creation, this cosmos, uh, this creation, this order where we find ourselves. And so he goes through what this temple is and what's going on with this portable temple, which is really what the tabernacle is. And when he talks about this portable temple, he wants us to think about events that have happened. We find that there's regulations. So it's not Moses being a maverick. Right? Moses doesn't say, well, let's just build this building and see if God blesses it. No. As we said, God showed him the pattern for this. He had the blueprints. So it is something ordained by God and has regulations. This was something that God blessed and desired, as we find in Exodus 24. Exodus 25, we find the regulations for this and the requirements to place the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. And he's calling this to our attention basically when you go through verses uh, 2 through 5. And so what, what does he call to our attention here? Well, he calls to our attention to two sections. So you'd have the first section, which is a holy place, right? God is really there. Uh, you have the bread of the presence. You have the lampstand and a table. Uh, the second room is the most holy place divided by the purple veil, 
which is a significance when Christ dies on the cross, the curtain's torn in two, where you're seeing there's the entry into the most holy place, meaning or symbolizing heaven itself. So what's the significance of these events or, or these things? Well, first, when we think about the bread of the presence and, 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 and the table, this is basically what you would have in the Levitical law of a Thanksgiving offering, having a meal with God, tasting the heavenly uh, banquet. And so there you, you have this wonderful presentation given to Israel. This is where I'm taking you. This is where you're going uh, to this ultimate banquet and celebration of my victory. But we also have this lampstand. The lampstand, remember, is there's requirements, and we talked about this in Zechariah in the new temple with the two olive trees. Remember that continued to pour the olive oil into the lampstand, that the priests would not tend to it. We have the requirements in Exodus 26 where the priest is to continue to tend to it. Exodus 27, uh, 20 is a call for the priest never to let this go out. Now the significance of this lamp that we uh, translate or transliterate from the Hebrew as menorah, lampstand, uh, when, when we take this into the English called the menorah, which just means or just as lampstand in the Hebrew language, what it symbolizes is God's continual spirit with his people. So if this lampstand would go out, it's Ichabod. The glory has departed, right? That's the curse, the ultimate curse. When the glory of God has departed, you don't want Ichabod. And so this lampstand with the priest continually tending to it is communicating that God is present. But it also tells us how fragile it is, isn't it? Because if a priest lets it go out, it means it's Ichabod. God's not with them. Uh, that's a terrible thing. This is not the mistake you want to make on duty. And so this is an important thing to keep that lampstand going. It's fragile. It's temporary. It's not something that endures. That's why Zachariah's vision is so profound. I mean, you have the olive tree funneling the olive oil into the menorah, the lampstand, and so God is always with his people. Going on then, when we think about the table, Exodus 25, 23 through 30, these are the 12 loaves of bread, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. They are baked every Sabbath. They're uh, baked and, and replaced and replenished uh, morning and evening. We have the inner sanctuary with the Ark of the Covenant. So we, we move from the first place where basically you, you could enter and, and you could uh, worship God there. But the most holy place is where you have the high priest functioning uh, once a year. And in this most holy place, we have our attention called uh, to the Ark of the Covenant. And there's a few things called to our attention here. Uh, we have the altar of incense. This would be, at least as he's recalling here, the, I guess we could say the, the rebuilding of the tabernacle, or the second tabernacle, where you have the regulation for the altar of incense to be placed in the most holy place. And then you would have the Ark of the Covenant. Now in the Ark of the Covenant, he calls to our attention a few things that I think is pretty significant in light of Hebrews 4. You have the golden urn of manna. Why did Israel receive manna? Because they grumbled against God. And they said, you brought us into this wilderness to die. And so the Lord gives them manna. Exodus 16, verse 3. Again, it's a recollection. You complain, you grumble. The Lord's faithful. The Lord provides. Aaron's staff that budded. This is another a tragic scenario and situation in Israel's history. This is a scenario we read about in Numbers 17 with Korah's rebellion going on in the context of this. 
after Korah's rebellion, uh, you have then uh, the Jews that are swallowed up and consumed. The people are mad at Moses, say, this is your fault. Uh, you're, you don't have the proper priest in charge. And so the Lord says, take their staffs. So it's, the staff comes from what? A piece of wood. It's dead. He's been carrying it around. It is a very, very dead staff. And he's saying, you take the staff from all the different priests or the different representatives, and the one uh, staff that buds is a staff or the priest that, that is mine. So this would symbolize life coming from death. I mean, a rather profound thing. A very dead a branch of wood is going to all of a sudden sprout life. I mean, this is obviously uh, not something someone can do simply by tampering with the staffs. So they take them, leave them overnight. Aaron's staff is the one that buds. So again, it, it testifies Israel failed, Israel rebelled. The Lord provided a priest. Aaron is duly called. And we have there that recollection of this Ark of the Covenant. We have then also the tablets of the covenant, which would simply be the Ten Commandments. And so, by and large, when, when we think about these things, minus the tablets of the covenant, of course, we could talk about the second giving of the law, uh, not Deuteronomy, but after Moses goes up and the mountain comes down, the golden calf, and then the Lord gives them the tablets again. I mean, we could also recall that. But overall, the, the fundamental problem we see here is a recollection of what the Lord has said in Hebrews 3-4 to and what the author has said. Don't grumble in the wilderness. Don't test God. Don't ask God to really prove himself because God might just prove himself. And that's not something you want to see necessarily. That's a, that's a frightening thing. These things, these relics, if you will, not, not that they're imaginary, but it's certainly religious items that, that call to our attention God's faithfulness and the struggle of God's people. And so it calls us, oh, he said we're in a situation in the wilderness restarting this. Joshua didn't give them rest. We better pay attention because this precedent for God's people is not a very good precedent of the faithfulness of his people. So how is the Lord being faithful? What is the point of calling to our attention these relics, these things that have happened? Well, this is where we move on in verses 6 through 10. We think about the limitation of this tabernacle. So he says these preparations being made. Uh, so he's going on developing it. But notice in verse 5 where he ends off doing this transition. Where he says, but now we can't speak of these things in detail. But nevertheless, calling these things to Israel's attention would make an, an individual grown up with this tradition think back to those events and the significance of these relics. So the author of Hebrews is here once again sort of snapping us out of it and saying, okay, you, you thought about some of those things, didn't you? You thought about the history of what God's people have done. And, and you thought about the history of God being faithful. But now let's think about what we have today. Let's not fall into those old traps, those old patterns, those old ways of doing things. What do we have today? And this is a contrast he intends for us to draw. Because now he's saying, listen, there's these preparations having been made. So what does this mean? Well, these are the regulations. So this earthly building confined to this age, the priest following the regulations, offering blood for himself, preparing himself to go and encounter and meet with God. First, he has to make an offering for himself because he's a wicked man. 
And then he can go into the presence of God and hopefully his preparations take that he's done enough. So he makes these preparations. Well, he can go regularly into the first section, right? And he can perform those ritual duties. So the intention of this is calling to our mind this happens again and again and again and again. The priest prepares himself. The priest goes in. He does these duties again and again and again, uh, dealing with the people of God. But now he calls to our attention an event in Israel's history that's a significant event. It's recalling for us the day of atonement. And the day of the atonement we can read about in Leviticus 16. It's a rather wonderful day in the Jewish calendar. This is a day where the priest would go and he would make his offering in the most holy place. But what he would also do is he would have two goats. One's the scapegoat, one's the offering. Uh, I, I don't know which one would have the better fate. Uh, the scapegoat is one that gets sent out into the wilderness when the priest puts his hands on its head, and basically the picture there is the scapegoat takes the sins of the people away from the camp or away from the community. Now I say that may not be a good fate because that's probably a slow death if it can survive the wilderness with wild animals and finding uh, provisions to sustain life. So that's, a, that's one goat that is sent away after casting lots and is symbolic of the sins of God's people being cast or put upon this very animal. Sins are taken away. The second goat is the one that is offered to make payment for sin. So here we have the twofold picture of Christ's work, don't we? Christ is the one who takes our sin and removes it from us. It's credited to, us, to him, even though he's without sin as a great priest. And then Christ is the one who credits his work to us. So his, the, the wrath of God poured out upon him takes away our sins. And so the Day of Atonement is picturing this wonderful thing, this beautiful thing that our Lord is going to do in his redemptive program. That he's going to move us beyond being an earthy people. Now remember what we mean by that. It's not earthy in the sense of being body and soul is evil, but earthy in the sense of being confined to a sin-impacted, a sin-cursed existence. He's going to move us beyond that as a picture here. But the author of Hebrews doesn't go there yet. That's, that's developed later in the context of Hebrews 9. But he wants us to understand how temporary this is. Even though Israel would say, I love the Day of Atonement. And believe me, if you were an Israelite growing up, you would look forward to this day. What a wonderful day. A beautiful picture. What does he tell us? But once a year. The implication is this is done year after year after year. It isn't a one-for-all event. He has to first offer blood for himself. So the priest can't just go into the most holy place because he's in the line of Aaron. We talked about the budded staff, properly called. We've talked about the genetics uh, when we built up to this point and, and how Moses set it up that they have to be in the line of Aaron. So that's not enough to cleanse him. He has to take this blood for himself. But notice how wicked we are. It's not happy to hear. It's not happy to think about for the intentional and unintentional sins. In other words, he's, he's going to be conscious that, that God's people are so wicked that we don't even know all the sins we commit. We, we, we just commit them. It's who we are. 
And yet, the Lord in His provision covers for those unintentional sins. Even the ones we're, we're not conscious of, the Spirit's not pressing on us for these particular sins. We're, we're not aware of them, at least at this stage in life. Maybe down the road, as the Lord is gracious and opens our eyes to them, we may see them. But this is where you find this Day of Atonement. And as it's re re refreshed, you think, wow, what, what a wonderful God. That, that he sends in the priests to take care of even this detail, this minor detail that we think is so insignificant, but yet it, it puts us in this great chasm between us and God. We cannot draw near with this. And our Lord takes care of it. And as he goes on, so as the priest goes into this most holy place, he does this continually, continually, continually. In other words, as the priest enters into that most holy place, this is not a once-for-all event. So you go through the Day of Atonement, you think, wow, what a wonderful picture I've just seen. Now I have to wait all the way for next year to do this again. And, and, and I wonder what's going to happen. Will, will the Lord be able to take this away? Right? There is nothing settled or lasting. That's his point. And he says, you want to go back to the tabernacle. I, I get the tangibleness of this. I, I get it. But it's not enduring. It's not going to last. What's the point? And so as he goes on, he says, listen, as long as this first section is still standing, there is no entrance into the heavenly. And so certainly there's a projection down, if, if you will. There's, there's a showing of the reality of, of this tabernacle and the true heavenly uh, presence of God. But the tabernacle is not something that endures. That's why I think it's so important in Hebrews 9, we understand the language here. It's not the temple that he's calling to our attention, a permanent building. He wants us to think about the regulations of the portable temple, the temporary temple, the provisional temple, that it's not lasting, it is not enduring. You see, the, the problem is that the way to the most holy place is not always open. So as long as there's a first holy place, you cannot get to the most holy place all the time. Because you're, you're reminded when you walk into the holy place, you can't get to the next room. You can look at it through the curtain or through the veil that's there. You, you might see some reflections of things, but you can't get there. And the author of Hebrews is saying, why do you want to, to go back to this when you can't even draw near personally and definitively to your God? But he calls to our attention something else that this is like our present age. So he wants us to understand that the same frustration that Israel would have, we can have today, right? There's a consciousness. I'm redeemed in Christ. I have Christ. But yet, I can't take an unbeliever to the throne of Christ and say, there he is, right? I mean, Christ will reveal himself one day, and he will come in glory, but right now, there, he's calling to our attention, yeah, there's still that angst. There, there's still that unrest. I want to draw near to Christ. I want to draw near into the most holy place, but I can't. And so he's saying in the present age, we can feel this. But we want to say, well, then what is better? He wants us to go back now and say, but what, what about this earthly tent? Notice in verse 9 as he goes on, that this earthly tent it can't take away our sins. It doesn't really do it. 
Uh, these gifts and sacrifices, they're, they're not going to perfect your conscience. He's going to go into this in chapter 10 more. But right here, he's starting to introduce this concept. This earthy creation that has fallen, no matter how many animals are offered, no matter how much purification is done, it is not sufficient. We, we can't take away our sins with this earthly creation. It's fallen. It's sinful. It's cursed. So there's nothing in this world that can get us to step up into the age to come. So now this starts creating more angst, doesn't it? But in chapter 10, or, or, more, or in verse 10, he goes on. He says, you see, the, the old thing, it's only dealing with food and drink. It's only dealing with, with models. You know, remember we talked about the prototype and then the ultimate production model. So I know some people refer to the prototype being in heaven, but I prefer to think of a prototype as we speak of it. It's, it's the first trial, if you will, and see how that trial works before you actually put it into production. Now I know that all analogies break down. I'm not saying God needs to first try out his redemptive program, see what works and what doesn't work, and then he goes, oh, now we'll perfect it. God knows what perfection is. It's for us. It's for us to see the intention of this. And it's for us to be reminded that this age is never going to provide the ultimate satisfaction and rest. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. So Solomon says, if you're looking for life only under the sun in this age, you will not find definitive rest. This world will not provide it. So what is he talking about in the time of Reformation? He's not talking about the Reformation that happened, you know, in the 1500s. He's talking about the Reformation at the advent of Christ. And when he talks about the advent of Christ, he wants us to think back to this Ark of the Covenant as well. We have the Holy of Holies. We think about the Ark of the Covenant. We think about the cherubim. And as we think about the cherubim of glory in verse 5, we go back to this picture. Because he, he drops a very subtle detail. You see, the, the cherubim would be above the throne of mercy or the mercy seat. And the picture there is that God is, is enthroned in his glory and here's a mercy seat that's in the most holy place. The language here echoes what he has spoken of in chapter 4, where we can draw near to his throne of grace in our time of need. So when he's talking about reformation, he's calling our attention back to the implications of chapter 4. So yeah, there's that reminder in chapter 3 and 4, hey, don't test God in the wilderness. You're in a wilderness sojourn. Uh, Joshua didn't give them rest. We're still going to the day of rest. And hey, we have a priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. We can draw near in our time of need to his throne of grace. So this time of reformation, when the author of Hebrews is giving us a subtle assurance at the end of this section, as I mentioned, regulation, regulation, uh, verses 1 and, and 10, he's giving us this, this assurance that there's a time of reformation. You're not drawing near to the mercy seat in a portable uh, temple where God's walking in the midst of you in the Ark of the Covenant that's placed into uh, the tabernacle in the most holy place, symbolizing God being there, and he certainly was. He didn't mess with the Ark of the Covenant. But the assurance here is that we don't draw near to the Ark of the Covenant, a symbol of God's presence, 
a picture of his presence. But even in this weakened state, you know, as we're confined to this age, we experience the, the, the curse of creation. We still struggle with sin. We, we don't have a full rest. We're in the midst of a sojourn. We're tempted to test God. We're tempted to grumble against God. Where do we find our peace? In knowing that we are in the time of reformation. A time where we draw near to the throne of grace. Where when we think of that mercy seat, the throne of grace of God. And he's saying that as we draw near, this isn't just cleansing our consciences from dead works. This is a sanctifying power, a spirit that penetrates the very heart of who we are. We don't long for the annual day of atonement where, where you have this day and the symbolism of the scapegoat and the sacrifice of the goat. We ground ourselves in the assurance of the one-time sacrifice of Christ that has been made in the most holy place. And then in conclusion then, why would we say then that the author of Hebrews is not speaking of some sort of this Platonic or Gnostic idea that our ideal is being in a disembodied state where, where we're just floating spirits as the ideal status of man. How do we know this is a better history? When the author of Hebrews calling to our attention, he's not saying the problem is necessarily being in the presence of God uh, through these things. The problem is when we're only looking at these things and not seeing the greater reality beyond them. The mention of this very uh, throne and mercy seat, speaking of Christ seated on the throne of grace, calling to the, that to our attention, having this visible presentation of Christ being sacrificed and offered, and understanding that, that we are cleansed from dead works at the core of our being, Christ enthroned in heaven, is telling us that the very intention of God is that we will physically be brought into his presence by his grace because of the work of Christ as individuals who are resurrected body and soul. And that we will be those who will gather around the glorious Christ and we will see him on his throne in glory as John did in Revelation. The assurance that we may have in this age is where we can look back to Israel and say, but they have these tangible things then. The author of Hebrews is saying, yes. And right now we're on another wilderness sojourn. What was precedented there is what we're realizing now. And as we realize this, where are we going? Where is the conclusion as the ultimate assurance? Our conclusion is that this heavenly glory. Because Christ has come. Christ has established this day of atonement once for all. And as we sojourn to this final goal, it is the assurance that we will enter into his rest once for all. And we say, but what about our time now? It was nice to have the priest. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't you see your priest? Don't you hear who your priest is? He is enthroned in the glory of heaven triumphant as the one who invites you to draw near to the throne of grace, not through a priest, but through the definitive priest, Jesus Christ himself. Let us not minimize the significance of the enthronement of our Lord and our priest-king who presides in the presence of our God. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. 
Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.